412 in the afternoon on CPL Radio, and it's uh, time for us to kick it over to Erica and an actual Bridge the Divide live broadcast. So uh, it's all yours. I'm (laughs) stepping away. (laughs) Thank you very much. Welcome to Bridge the Divide's first ever live broadcast broadcast. So please be gentle with us. There's lots of things that we have to learn and figure out as we go. Um, But I do thank you for joining. We are live at the Cedarburg Public Library. And hopefully you got any of those social media posts that tell you how to how to link to tune in or how to go to the Cedarburg Public Library um, website and link over to CPL. We also want to give you a quick call in number. If you have questions or comments, you can call in to 262-238-3403. So I am um, Erica uh, from Bridge the Divide. Uh, This is a a forum for discussion that we've created out here in Elzaki County. We are kind of looking at whatever we can do for racial reconciliation, whether we have to point out inequities, Um, educate others, work on trying to help foster empathy, all of those things that are necessary, especially in these times. That's what Bridge the Divide tries to do. We have um, monthly meetings the first Monday of every month here at Cedarburg Public Library, uh, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. in the community room. So um, if you're around town, feel free to come out for one of the meetings. So the, the reason that we're having this live broadcast today is because we've had some, um, some scuttlebutt here around southeastern Wisconsin around To Kill a Mockingbird. So um, I also have a, a lovely guest with me here, Lisa. How you doing, Lisa? I'm doing fine, <laughs> um, the, I guess the, the way we want to start the show out today is just to kind of talk about what has happened um, over in Shorewood over the past week or so. And, you know, sometimes when things like this happen, we have some feelings. And we want to talk about some of our feelings about, um, about how things happened. So Shorewood High School um, was planning on putting on a production of To Kill a Mockingbird. And it was, it sounds like it was chosen last year, prepared for this, this school year, and they did some practices, and maybe after they started using the N-word in some of the practices, there were some ears that perked up to say, wait, you're not really using the N-word in the play, are you? So it sounds like it was it was not expected, and about three hours before opening night for the production, they shut the production down. Um, and... The the reason given, as I recall, is for safety concerns. So I, I do know that there were some folks that were upset about a, a live play in a, a mostly white suburb of Milwaukee uh, using the N-word on stage. And I think that there were supposed to be some peaceful protests around, we don't really think that's a good thing to do. So um, the the production got stopped, and then... A few days later, after some conversations locally, they are going to put the production on again tomorrow at 7 p.m. And it's also going to include some community conversations over in Shorewood. Um, and that starts tonight. So um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the book, I think we read it. Did you read it in, in high school? I think I read it, uh, yeah, in high school. Okay. It was like 30 some years ago. Okay. <laughs> 
No, we're not old at all. <laughs> yes. So for for people of color, and my friend Lisa here is also an African-American lady. Uh, so for us, the thing that I remember most about To Kill a Mockingbird, I know I'm supposed to have remembered the, the deep meaning and talking about racial divisions and how Atticus was a great, um, a great um, protector of Tom. But I don't remember that. I remember the N-word 40 sometimes. So um, tell me a little bit about your experience with the N-word in your life and, and kind of what you think about it. Well, let me just give you a little bit of background. My name is Lisa. I'm the co-chair of Red Racism Milwaukee. And we are trying to do just exactly that to rid racism um, in Milwaukee, um, which is the most segregated city. It has the highest incarceration rate in a single zip code. We are like number seven or eight in poverty in the country. Um, so anything that you would think of that would be the worst is right in our own back wrap backyard um, Milwaukee so let me just kind of give you uh, a background about me where I grew up um, I went to a school that was very similar to Shorewood I went to Nicolet mm -hmm. so I grew up in Bayside which is a predominantly white neighborhood uh, affluent and I can remember in high school, I never told my parents, but there are a number of times I actually got called the N word when I was a when I was in school. Mm -hmm. Never told my parents um, some of this kind of thing that had went on, and just uh, didn't really get accepted mm -hmm. by the by the my white peers, you know, at that time, and it was very very painful especially when you have to see people every day and they've said the word and you internalize a lot of that mm -hmm. and especially you don't want to put more on your parents there's a lot of things going on at home right. teenagers don't tell everything to their parents right. it's only really here recently that I've actually told my mom is, is gone so she's not here for me to tell but I've recently told my dad and my dad's like how come I didn't know this right He's like, how can I? How come I didn't know this? And we would have done this, and we would have gone to the, to the school. But to be really honest, nothing would have been done mm -hmm. to those white children. Get over it. You know, it's, it's, it's. You know, this is just the way it is, mm -hmm. and um, the harm that that comes from that. And no word, there is no other word, in my estimation, from my experience. I'm sure that other groups have their own words mm -hmm. that are very painful to them. But because of the nature of the N-word that's tied to lynching, mm -hmm. those were the last words black folks heard when they were lynched by white people is the N-word. And to say the word in any sort of public format mm -hmm. in a production, when you're talking to your coworkers or you're talking denigrating other people, mm -hmm. is unacceptable. 
Now, let me let me tell you, um, I was hoping to have the recording, but I don't think I have it this time. Um, you can go on on Facebook. They have a, a clip of the students who were in the cast who recorded. Um, I, I think it's less than two minutes to say we know that this is a hard word. We've talked about it with mm-hmm. our director. We've talked about it um, here as a cast. We know that it's hard, but it's something that's necessary to say so that we can all um, face and confront the racism in our in our country. What do you, what do you think about that? Is was that a, enough of a cover? They they tried to they they tried to say do something. In my estimation, no, yeah, no. I believe that if you're going to do race discussions, it should not be at the harm of black people, Mm -hmm. period. And if you have the black students who are saying at Shorewood, and they brought it to the, you know, they just didn't want, they didn't say not to do the play. Correct, right. They did not say not to do the play. I think people need to understand they didn't say that. Mm What they asked was, do not say the N-word because it's too painful of, in light of our experience, our historical experience, and what is going on with racism in this country. Mm-hmm. It, we have to live in this high school and to see white classmates who said that in the play is just too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. What I don't understand with the administration, which I'm probably, I have not met with them, but Mm -hmm. I would be very curious to see if the principal was black or another person of color or- That was at the table. Administration and things like that. Because when you do a play, and especially To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a reason why schools are not doing it and the controversialness and why they are doing adaptive versions of it. My question is, why didn't they engage the students and other people who are in the greater Milwaukee area, and particularly Milwaukee? Why didn't they engage with any of the the black folks Mm -hmm. or the people who are doing racism work? They certainly didn't contact me um, that, you know, and some of the other folks who do racism work. Mm -hmm. They were contacted after the blow up. Right, right. And I think from my estimation, it again is white folks discounting the pain that is caused and believing that they are administrators, they are educators, they are this, these are these degrees, and they've and they don't realize they have biases. Mm-hmm that are deep-seated, they have white privilege that they have not unpacked. And even the curriculum that is taught is whitewashed and purged of the experience of what black folks and and natives Mm -hmm. have gone through in this country. And so they are not culturally competent. Mm -hmm to have those kinds of conversations. And I don't believe that white people 
understand just how culturally and race incompetent that they are. So the the book um, we're we're hoping to get. You know, I, I did put out the call-in number. I haven't seen the phone ring yet, but we are hoping to get um, Dr. Raj Sampath calling. Uh, he is an associate professor of philosophy, justice, rights, and social change, mm -hmm. and he is also uh, the director of a master's program in sustainable international development at, at Heller um, Heller uh, Graduate School uh, attached to Brandeis University. So one of the one of the pieces that we have to unpack is the book itself. So we have the N-word that, mm -hmm. you know, raises a lot of ire right away. We have the book in general. This is a book that was written in the 60s, about the 30s. And when you hear people um, supporting how important it is to, to read this classic and to perform the play, it really is about this book shows us the racism. It shows us how a community mistreats another person in the community. It shows us how um, the justice system did not work for um, Tom and how we are trying to, to, to advocate for him, but it wasn't working. So when I've heard, you know, folks on, on many different sides of the coin, it's, this is a good book. It's a sturdy book that can teach us about racism, and it's something that we should be reading in school because then we can talk about it. Oh, look, this is my. Let's see if I can do it. Sorry. Paul, I'm challenged. Raj H. Sampath. Hi, Raj. Yes. <laughs> Hi, this is Erica. Thank you for calling in. Hi, Erica. Good to talk to you. Yes. We were we were just starting to to uh, talk about how the the book To Kill a Mockingbird is touted as a book that can teach us about racism and help us figure out how in our current day to to tackle racism. So you are um, you are working with college students, graduate students. What can you tell me about what, what either To Kill a Mockingbird has to offer or what kind of things you see that are needed to help us create some older students that have learned about racism or, or uh, social justice items? Well, well, thank you, Erica, for having me. And, um, and, and, and thank you for this uh, opportunity to talk about this. You know, I was just talking to some colleagues and, and everyone else I do, which is it's, it's very difficult to talk about the transmission of art and literature and history at any given time because when, when society diversifies and changes, they're going to receive the content that comes through history over time. For example, this novel, which is the, from the 1960s, uh, Harper Lee's obviously someone from the, the early 30s. And so to think about how this has been part of the canon, it shaped the white imagination, and it's people draw to it. It's, it's, I've been told it's the second most read text since the Bible from the 1960s. Obviously, it's played a, a, you know, an immensely important role. 
in in our, our our culture but my intuition is that maybe we need to pause because if you think about the diversification rates of America we weren't diversifying that quickly and that rapidly until very recently meaning if you look at the context of Harper Lee from the 1930s and you think of the novel in the 1960s and then you think of 2018 and whatever's to come you know you can't compare across ages and I, I I'm on the edge there when I think about folks that believe that perhaps we need to think more carefully and be more considerate and more reflective or at least create venues where we can actually talk about what we're receiving in terms of content as much as people appreciate and realize how great this piece of work is you know as, as, as an artwork uh, my concern is to actually take a step back and, and be more careful and understand how words are being received and how, how do we have a dialogue about that so in this case having revisited it again multiple times you know one can understand how people can take harm or they can feel harm or, or feel a certain amount of offense in not only the use of the words but the staging of it the way the characters are portrayed who's the hero who's been marginalized um who gets glorified what happens to the actual victim in this case if you ask me tom and how do we transpose that all the feelings that that could evoke with what's happening today which is a quest for racial justice given the fact that most americans don't know that we are the most rapidly diversifying society in the west and there's no precedent for this in the northern hemisphere so you know instead of trying to get into debates about what what is about free speech and should we censor things most people don't want to censor anything people want to talk about whatever they want they want to say anything they want they want to use any word they want to use and that's fine but my my concern is if you were to do go down that path and allow for this unbridled presentation of everything from our past and not deal with the effects that that could have given the diversifying complexity we're dealing with, then, you know, we're not going to have a peaceful society. And that's my main concern. So that's, that's my proviso or, or opening. Okay. So sentence. you, like we talked about, you're, you're dealing with, you know, adults, and the folks, by the time they've gotten to you, have probably lived a little bit. Um, do you have any anything that you can see is missing from your students in their awareness of this by the time they get up there to, to uh, college age? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> so I guess we're dealing with some extremely young folks. But when you say young, I'm thinking undergrads, 18 to 22, and some grad students, mid-20s. Uh, you know, if you think about the Pew statistics that are coming out and every demographic is analysis for our society, 0 to 18 is now across the country, not geographically bounded, but it's going to be, the, you know, the Midwest and the, the mid-Northwest, if that, that exists. But it's not just the Southwest or the South or the, the coast, like the South Coast, I mean the West Coast. But, you know, 
eight, zero to 18, which is Generation Z, is now below what we call non-Latino, non-Hispanic until the U.S. Census in 2020 changes, and they can reorganize those categories. We can talk about that, but if you're looking to zero to 18, births from 2000, that group of folks are now below 50% white. So, you know, two parents of European descent, for example, it's about roughly 49, 48%. So this projection of diversity is happening much faster than we thought. So what is this new emerging majority? It's going to be people that are Latino, quote unquote, Hispanic, um, African American, Asian American, and the fastest growing group is multiracial. So we're moving towards a society that is so incredibly diverse across this immense geography. Like I said, that's not doing dealing with borders or coasts. And so when you talk about an aging demography of folks that don't see this diversification happening, and they think about the transmission of content about what we can learn about race relations or diversity, obviously can lead to a lot of tensions and uh, misinterpretations about what the intent is when people try to do things. So for example, in your community, when you say like, okay, we're gonna do this play. Like I said, I, I think we need to incorporate time and space. There's rapid diversification and to think that what worked a few years ago, which is like, okay, I'm going to stage this play and we'll, you know, we'll just talk about the, the ideas of race and, and uh, interracial relations and the injustice that's incorporated in our society. There's the, that's a certain way to talk about it. And we can appreciate that as art, but we can also deconstruct that or critique that or question that saying, look, well, wait a minute. I don't want to talk about this issue in that way. And therefore, we have to really question where uh, we can actually think about art in a different way, one that leads to more reconciliation or peace building or at least some kind of dialogue where we don't polarize people like a lot of these plays tend to do. Um, Lisa, I wanted to kind of take a follow-up from from, um, Raj for what you know about Shorewood about our area, how segregated we are mm-hmm. just in our, our residences, which automatically make our schools very segregated. So mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, Shorewood initially might have missed the boat. They didn't have the conversations. They're planning on having those conversations now. What do you think they should look like? Well, I think those conversations need to be led by black folks. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll be really honest. I do believe that those uh, and the voices of white folks, they need to be quiet and they need to really listen. I think that that is one of the things is, and not listening just to take it in hearing, but when you listen, you absorb what you are hearing. And when you listen to something that's very difficult, then you're really able to break it down and make sure that you're open enough to be able to accept that. Um, The hardest thing I I believe in doing these conversations 
is it's just going to be one conversation that usually just think about when we use the word diversity, I'm just saying it's been hijacked, that it's one training, one event. It's not, it's not something white people are not taught that their racism journey is a lifetime journey. It's a lifetime journey. So it means more. It's reading multiple books. If they really wanted to have a conversation on race and different kinds of things, why didn't they use an author from a black perspective on their experience instead of a book that uses a white perspective from a white savior perspective? And we don't even talk about in schools the literature, just how racist it is because the voices, we don't hear voices and plays from Native, you know, the indigenous, the African American or or Asian. I mean, I would love to see those types of of plays, but are they done in schools, or have there been any kind of attempts to even do that? So that's why I said the the word um, diversity has really been hijacked because we really don't do diversity because it's from a white perspective. I think we're going to give ourselves a little bit of a break, and we will uh, come back on the other side. Thank you for listening.
You're tuned to CPL Radio. It's uh, 4.40 in the afternoon, and uh, we are in the midst of our first live call-in show. And um, it's going well. <laughs> and I'm going to turn it back over to Erica. And uh, and uh, like yourself, I'm just going to sit back and listen. <laughs> Thanks. I want to um, just remind folks, if you have any um any comments or questions that you want to call in while we're live, you can call 262-238-3403. And um, so on the other side of this break, we, there's just so much, there's so much to talk about. But we have um, Raj on the line who's calling in from Boston. Raj, you still there? I am. All righty. Go ahead and uh, um, let us know what you're thinking about some, some other comments that we just had. Well, it, it's so fascinating because we have to talk about the um, massive diversification, like I said, to go back to that comment and to respond to the previous uh, comments that were just made. Uh, my, my thing is that we're, we're, we're staring at a complexity that I don't think the history of this country has witnessed or seen or could have predicted, which is in both hemispheres, we're talking about a massive dis- diversification where this whole concept of whiteness is going to actually become a minority. And you can't compare that to, let's say, the European context, which is where whiteness descends from, for example. So if you look at those societies, they have their own complexity about refugees and minority rights, um, a Muslim population that's growing that creates the incredible xenophobia and, and complete oppression of that type of group of people. So. What you're talking about in terms of the descent, the, the origins of whiteness, it comes from Europe, and they can't even imagine what we're, what we're dealing with in this context because they don't have that historical context. They have the history of colonization and imperialism, and they're dealing with a diversification that is much slower but also you know, this retrograde kind of reaction that they have leading to the right, the extreme right-wing movements that we see there that, from, from our perspective in America, is extremely disturbing. But to bring it back to our context, and the reason I draw that analogy is that I don't think we've gotten to a certain level of enlightenment, to be quite, quite frank, in terms of central Democrat, liberal Democrat, central conservative. You know, the media wants to polarize things between the alt-right or the extreme conservative, or they're now the white nationalists, and whatever the Trump movement means, whatever the hell that is, or to the extreme left. But I don't think in our context here in the United States, we've come to grips with this context of this massive demographic transformation, which is going to lead to a whole new set of values by which we can talk and think and relate to each other. So it, it's both intergenerational it's multiracial. It's the term we use in the academy and more mainstream now, intersectional, which means basically if you're a person that has two or three variables that constitute a minority status, let's say you're queer, black, trans, you know. So if you think about that complexity, 
we we have a, a chance in our society to talk in in a more intelligent way, if you ask me. Needs to be the whole world, especially Europe, and we have a, we have a chance to talk about our evolving complexity. But we don't have the mechanisms in our media and most of our institutions to actually capture that complexity. And that is cut across generations. I'm going to be very strong about that perspective. I don't think older generations can actually understand the younger generations. And yet the younger generations are the ones that are providing the conditions to talk and think and speak in ways that are more peaceful and interracial. So, in other words, you can't just transmit this play as canonically great as it is to a whole history in the 20th century you know people are going to have different views about it and certainly in the way you receive the words so the words don't actually they're not neutral they're contextual they do cause harm and um, you know I don't speak for the entire academy I don't speak for this institution at this moment but I can tell you there's probably a three to four hundred percent increase in counseling centers for young people as they diversify to deal with these calcified institutions that can't respond to their needs. In other words, classrooms are not responding to the needs of the kids, to the young people. They're the, uh, you know, the faculty are having a hard time dialoguing about these issues. Nobody has the right or wrong answer because it's not science. Mm-hmm. But it is about justice. And it's about you know, the utopia that some of us still strive for as racial minorities, which is to think and talk in, in a way that's respectful and cooperative and understanding of past harm. Because past harm can be intergenerational. It can be traumatic. You know, we all descend from previous harms. It can start from colonization. And in the case of the American context, it's about slavery for the African-American people. And people do talk about the syndrome or the legacy or Native American or any other ethnic group that's, a, you know, come in and face differentiation and uh, political and economic oppression through the laws for a very, very long time. And yet now we have a, a very young, diverse society that's emerging. And they teach me. I mean, they, they tell me about ways to think and interpret words. So words are now, unlike 20, 30, 40 years ago, where it might not have mattered, six and stones, let's revise that maxim because words are kind of like weapons, and it does matter because I think young generations are incorporating the trauma of previous generations, and they don't want to put up with it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're going to be the majority. So I want to enlighten everybody to the extent that I can to seriously think about the constraints about what we mean by the canon, what do we mean by our, you know, anyone's defense of the constitutional law, the, the Bill of Rights, what do those things actually mean? Free speech, freedom to assemble, you know, freedom of religious expression, because somebody's liberty and expansion and freedom is actually compromising somebody else's freedom. And I don't think we have the complexity of thinking to deal with, deal with that. Oh, and, and, you know, we're we're talking about high schoolers. So, like you said, if we're struggling with it as an older generation, how do we help the high schoolers deal with it? And we've talked about whomever is going to come and 
hold conversations at Shorewood. And I want to make sure for anybody listening that we are this is we are not Shorewood. We're talking about um, another town, a village, a couple of towns over. And we just have the same kind of demographic here in our town that they have there and thought that it would be, you know, and it's a conversation that we need to have because we're struggling through it. And why do we have to keep Mm -hmm. struggling without trying to work through it? And how do we work through it? How do we let the students have a voice? I want to ask Lisa again, too, isn't there a... Is it Youth Rising Up? Youth youth Rising Up, uh, uh, YRU. Okay. Um, And I believe that um, there's a couple of students at at Shorewood that are part of that. Okay. That have been part of the discussions. And I know that there was an article I put on RID Racism, and they they talked about that that this was not, you know, that they are going to show the play. They're going to have discussions. Mm -hmm. And from their view and their perspective, I saw when I put the quote out on our Facebook page, it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was like our voices are not uh, the concerns of what we have is not being really listened mm-hmm. to. And again, from my perspective, that goes back to just the incompetence and the cultural illiteracy of white people. Um, I was recently looking at an article by uh, Dr. D'Angelo, who, who coined the term white fragility. Yeah. And she talked about, in, the, in this particular article that went, uh, that was on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, she talked about the, just the incompetency, are you racially competent? You know, and I had put that on, on Red Racism Milwaukee because in my encounters with the vast majority of white people and even some people who want to be allies, they are not culturally competent. And this, the culture that we have of white supremacy and the legacy has really created a very cognitive dissidence of brainwashing of white people. And I use that, I, I don't use that that lightly. Mm. I, I, you know, because everything it's been socialized for them the white privilege and things like that and they don't they don't see it and and i think that that's why you get the white fragility and they don't understand why they need to be culturally competent or i've learned this and and you know when you hear people of color they they don't enter that doesn't come in and uh uh they're not really listening and because they have this take back because of their experience and what they've been socialized to. And so I think this is mm-hmm. this is where we have, I mean, so many of our struggles. Mm-hmm. We have a group of people who we think don't have all of the information. Right. We have a flashpoint, which is a play that folks are having a knee-jerk reaction to. And if we didn't have the conversation before, we have it's time to have the conversation now we have you know we don't want to um in our in our ground rules for our meetings you know we talk about using i statements so we don't generalize entire groups of people we have a, a group of people who were trying to do a play who were trying to spark conversations and interact with people that weren't trying to harm anyone the intent, we, we talk about the intent versus impact. The intent was, let's show this play. Let's talk about how hard these things are. Let's talk about the past. Let's show that we haven't come so far. 
let's talk about it. So even though we have an overwhelmingly white suburb, it wasn't a group of white people that said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to stand out and we're going to make everybody mad and see if we can cause trouble. That's not what they were doing. They were trying to put on a play and maybe got a couple of things wrong. So what do we do about that now? How how can we have a, a connection so that we're joining together to get somewhere so that we can be better next time? Can I can I just throw something yes. out there? And, yes, sir. Thank you. It's just, you know, it, it's one thing that I mean, we've been living with decades of critical race here, which is it, we're not blaming white liberalism for causing harm. It's not about intent. We are talking about a new cultural blindness, color blindness and post-racial racism, which is to think like, oh, OK, we've gotten past the biological racism or segregation or Jim Crow. Uh, and white liberals have reached a point in terms of their evolution, which is to think like, okay, you know, we're we're all in it. We understand that, and and we don't understand the reproduction of unconscious effects and gestures when you do things, and and people don't realize it causes harm to folks of color. And and I I I, I analyze that. I, I negotiate that. I deal that. I live with that on a daily basis. It. it my question is actually more philosophical, which is, it sounds futuristic, but my view is that we are dealing with a majority that's been the majority for a very long time and are about to become the minority. And the condition for a classification system in the United States, the, the racial classification system, the condition for that is that whiteness gets to be invisible. It doesn't show up as a color. It's the structure of power that constitutes everything else that's not it. And we've been living with that as a society in the West, most Western European societies, and certainly here in the United States, as a product of the, the British colonies and uh, you know the, the formation as a white world built on African-American slavery. That whiteness is that invisible structure that gets to racialize everything else. And we haven't reached a point where when they become a minority – it's going to become a racial object, and I don't think people understand that when that happens, that's going to be it, – it, it's so transformative, which means, yes, it's, it's a question of the whiteness feeling a sense of being a minority, being constituted as another, as Du Bois said, when the innocence of the two peoples, as he says in the opening of the, the um, social black folk – which is babies and Europeans don't have a concept of race. And what he means by that is that it's that innocence. It's just sort of like you're not visible. You're not showing up as an object that you're constituting as as racialized, as black or brown or whatever that's not white. So when that they become a minority and they show up as an object of race, you know, it's not about turning the tables and saying, okay, we're going to, you know, press them is the question of, you know, wh wh where's that shift in consciousness where suddenly there's a feeling of being somebody that's being constituted as somebody else because they've enjoyed that privilege. And I think that play, for example, or the novel, it's an example of that. I mean, it's a framework that all folks of color like us, we've lived through that. We've had to live through that constitution of how whites have talked about race as opposed to people of color talking about race. And so some kind of inversion is going to take place in an immensely diverse 
you know, society. And the goal should be about peaceful dialogue. All righty. Thank you so very much, Raj, for joining us. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us. We're going to have to take another break here at the top of the hour, and we will come back with some more talk about uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Thanks.
5.05 in the afternoon or early evening, and it's uh, CPL Radio's first live call-in show, and uh, joined by uh, Erica Turner at uh, mic number three. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, mic number two. And mic number three is uh, Heidi Wheeler, who is our uh, Bridge the Divide regular as well. So um, I will turn it back to you. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Actually, let me do some quick thank yous. I should do that. Thank you to uh, the Friends of the Public, Cedarburg Public Library, of course, for uh, making CPL Radio possible. And thanks to our director, Linda Pershala. And thanks, of course, to our assistant director, David Nimmer, who answers all kinds of technical questions when I'm stumped, which is about <laughs> twice a week. So <laughs> it works out well. And uh, thanks, of course, to Producer Scott for coming in and being my security blanket for the day. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be weeping right now. So thank yous are out of the way. It's over to you, Erica. All righty. Thank you, everybody, for listening. So we just had an hour of uh, a lot of information, uh, a a lot of things to think about and you know at first glance and second and third and fifth glances it seems pretty overwhelming and so we've got my my partner in crime back on the mic here Mm -hmm. Heidi Wheeler so what are you thinking about all of that yeah so I was sitting over there listening to Raj and what I I guess the thing that um, most struck me is that we we are missing a framework we're in this this new era of you know, people are, it's no longer two colors anymore. It's, mm-hmm. it's multiracial. Um, we're, and with that, the generations are, there's a breakdown in communication between the generations and there's still a breakdown in communication between people of color and white people, probably most of all. And so how do we, how do we create this framework? I don't think there's any easy answers, but that's what right. I heard him saying is that we don't have a good way to, communicate yet mm-hmm. because things are complex and they're new in a way and we've got to acknowledge that and and fix it so you know the first beat we don't have a good way right and now what <laughs> right i was i was telling erica before we went on the air um it's kind of a weird thing to admit but if you're a, a white person out there listening and you care about issues of race and racial injustice. Um, You might feel like I do as a white person who cares, um, knowing that I don't have all the answers, but trying to listen and feeling confused. I I hear some people telling me um, it's not about your voice. You've had, there's been generations of the white voice Mm -hmm. and it's time for you to sit down and be quiet. Um, You're in the choir. Ooh, it sounds like we're getting a call. Oh, we can go back can to you, that. Okay, can you hold that thought? Yeah, we'll go back to that. Um, hi there, patients. Yes. Hi, this is Erica. Thanks for coming on live with uh, Bridge the Divide here at CPL. Hi, Erica. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Um, we just came back from a break, so if you could, can you just uh, let everybody know who you are and kind of give us uh, an update or how things are going on your side of the world. Absolutely. Um, my name is Patience. I have uh, three children that attend Shorewood High School, and um, my daughter is uh, part of the YRU group, the Youth Rising Up group that brought opposition to the use of the N-word in the play that Shorewood is putting on. Yeah, and how... so. 
we we kind of we the collective uh, world kind of heard about this the day of the play but you said that you had some affili- your children have some affiliation with why are you did they yes. did they talk about how they felt about the play before we all heard it the the opening night absolutely um my daughters they're both in sports at the school and i picked them up from practice one day and they were um, telling me about the use of the N-word and how they felt about it. I, at that time, asked them if they wanted me to do anything about it. Um, they said no, they had it. So that group facilitated a meeting with the superintendent, the principal, and the drama director, um, which I was very proud of them about. And um, I picked them up that day after school, after practice, and I asked them how the meeting went, and they weren't happy. Um they were told that the compromise would be that the school would omit the N-word from the preview of the play, which would be just for the students, but that it would still be in the play that ran that weekend. So at that point, again, I asked them if they wanted me to do anything. They said yes. Um, I reached out to a few people, made a few phone calls. The play was canceled the next day. Um, And then I'm pretty sure the school got pressure from the community. Mm -hmm. um, And... A few days later, they decided that they were going to still run the play and have a community conversation prior to the play and a talk back after the play. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, I guess the school feels that it's a compromise to do the play one day instead of three days, which to me is the same thing as telling a woman that you're not going to rape her three times, you're only going to rape her once. Mm. Boy. So, um... so at this point... Um, the school is scrambling. They're um, trying to put things in place to look like they are sensitive to the students and they're doing it so quickly that they're still going about it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that the children, the students have really anyone at the school to advocate for them. Um, and so that's, you know, I mean, that's our job as parents and that is exactly what I'm doing. So the, the community, when we talk about community, we're talking about the, the folks in Shorewood. Um, do you have an idea of how many, I guess, how many people complain to them, how, what the demographics look like on, on how this was reported to the, the administration? You know, was it at a handful of kids? Because we've also seen the video of, I want to say the it was actors. six or seven yeah. of the actors saying, we've talked about this, you know, we feel good about it. Are is that group of people in the minority and the people that don't want the N-word on stage in the majority? Or is it just a handful of people that complained and so the school feels like more people are on the side of, of produce the play or um, perform the play versus not? Do, do you know any of those? Good question. So I could not give you a, um, I couldn't give you an accurate answer of that because some people are speaking up, some people are not, some people are speaking that I'm not aware of. Um, But what I can say is that I don't think that it's necessarily a matter of numbers. I think it's a matter of power. Hmm. And if you know the Shorewood community, um, it's, it's a community of people that um, put money into that school 
And um, I've experienced it with my son on the basketball team. You know, he couldn't play because this person's parent is contributing more money to the sports, to the athletic club, and, Hmm. you know, things like that. So power is what got this play back on. Hmm. Um, And, you know, it bothers me because no one is really – no one at the school and – None of the people that I'm aware of that support the play are considering the children, every, the children that are opposing it. Everyone's talking about the play and, you know, the months of hard work that the children put into putting this play. But no one's understanding the hundreds of years of trauma and hundreds of years that these children are referring to that we are, have been trying you to stop saying that word. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that a few months of work toward entertainment trumps that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that I don't think they're understanding. Um, and everybody can, you know, is saying, well, it's just a word. It's more than just a word. Mm-hmm. Um, if it were just a word, then you would be able to omit the word. And that's another another thing that I've you know trying to follow the story um, on the news and and with some of the the social media posts that the way I understand it the play you you can't remove the word from the play you have to right. either perform it as is or not perform it like there there isn't another version or you can't adapt it and no, change it that's it's, not true. Okay. That's not true. There actually is another version that most high schools do. There's a high school version that does not have the word in it. Ah. Um, and the drama director had the opportunity to choose that okay. version. There is hmm. a version without the word in it. Is the drama director a white person? Absolutely. Yeah. The, there's not one black teacher in that school. There's not one black person right? on the board. Hmm. Um, again, that's why I said the children have no one advocating for them. Right. What, um, Patience, this is Heidi. I'm Erica's counterpart. I, I um, just moved to Wisconsin a few years ago, so I, I'm not um, as familiar with Shoreward. I understand it's a North Shore suburb, but what is the demographic breakdown in the community? Just for I couldn't give you percentage, but the, the, um, the black population is very small. Okay. So it's kind of similar to where we're at here in Cedarburg, and and the majority of those folks of color do they do they live in the neighborhood or do they live in a different neighborhood and go to the same school? I'd... Um, that I couldn't tell you okay. either, but yeah. but, but what part, I do know yeah. is that whether they live in that neighborhood or not, they're a part of that district because they right. attend the school, and whether they live in that community or not, they still deserve the same respect. Right. They still deserve the same voice. Right. Yeah, so so that doesn't make a difference. I've heard people ask if these were renters that were complaining. Mm. Well, I don't know what difference that Interesting. makes. Interesting. Oh, yeah, that's no So good. your point about advocacy and power is really important because it sounds like there is no one who's really um, a voice for the issues that this play is supposed to represent. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I know, Patience, we don't have you for too much longer, but can you tell me, I know there's going to be a community conversation in Shorewood tonight, mm-hmm. um, and my assumption is you're going to be there front and center. <laughs> um, tell me Absolutely. tell me what you hope to see. What If you could come out of there and say all of your dreams have come true, that everything that happened in this community conversation is exactly what you wanted, what, what would that look like? Um, ideally, I don't want the play to happen. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there have been people that have offered for the play to be done at a church off school campus. That's fine. They decided not to do that. And it seems like a power struggle. Um, my issue with uh, another one of my issues with the play being done on campus is that I read through my daughter's handbook and they clearly have a zero tolerance policy against hate speech, which includes mm. racial slurs. Um, it doesn't say, you know, well, you can do it in this capacity or that capacity. It's a zero tolerance. There's zero tolerance policy for intimidation, which is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm not wavering on the fact they can have as many conversations as they would like. I'm not wavering on the fact that I do not want this play to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's short term. Long term, I want to see some changes made within the administration. I want to see some changes made within the staff. I need more people in that school to advocate for my children. And when I say to my children, I mean any children of color, mm-hmm. because I do not want this to be a situation where, you know, we get over this, and then five years from now, freshmen are Something coming in else. and dealing with the same thing. Right, right. right. Hmm. Wow. All righty. I thank you very, very much for calling in. I really do appreciate it, and I hope that you that you see the progress that we would like to see tonight and then there's supposed to be another conversation tomorrow I understand yeah um so I I, I'm really hoping for some some progress and and relationship building that's that's a, Mm -hmm. a big thing that we're touting up here is it's hard to react to things when you don't have a relationship and hopefully we can have right. a, a better relationship in the community thank you so much for calling in I appreciate it patience thank you thank you so much uh-huh. bye-bye um do you do you want to finish our yeah chat yeah or? yeah let's let's go back to that uh Wow, that was powerful. You could hear yeah. the frustration in her voice. Right. These and are my children. I'm I'm advocating for my children. And to be a minority and have no voice again because there's no framework for that. And if white people are in power and they're not willing to give some of it up or give some of their um like I was telling you before, to get off the platform and share decision making and the voice and the microphone, we're going to continue to have these struggles. Right. How do we do that? I mean, I really, I, I don't know if it's just wishful thinking because we have bridged the divide, right? Part of what we're trying to do is get people to the same table. Because right. if, if the framework, if, if the, your frame of reference is so different that it's hard to compromise and you're not even sitting at the same table, how is that supposed to happen? So... We're trying to get people to the table and we're trying to get people to stay at the table when what they hear is hard or uncomfortable or not what they've always heard before. Mm-hmm. And are we are we getting there? I mean, we're having it seems like you got to start out slow, but then you have this kind of issue happen and and the conversations get a lot more terse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. I'm just thinking about this doesn't go directly with what you just said, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about how she said she has to advocate for her children to have a voice, her children mm-hmm. of color. Mm-hmm. And the sounds like the white families are advocating that their kid who practiced so hard can go on with the play. So like this clear values clash, which mm-hmm. um, are probably both sides believe in their values. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I just... I, I am siding with her. Like mm-hmm. when, as I listen to her, I think her point is way more valid. Mm-hmm. Um, but for white people, that like you said, if if this is all new, um, or they 
they don't have empathy for Mm -hmm. what it feels like to, you know, this word like is meaning is meaningful as Raj was saying. And we've talked about before. Why, why should the white people get to decide what happens? Mm -hmm. I don't understand. And, and it feels, you know, I have, I have children that are not in high school anymore, but it feels kind of sad to me that all things being equal, we're we're talking about a play, which is art. I was really hoping that we would be able to get some, you know, some actors or directors or some folks to come in to be able to talk about how much their art means to them and how much they put into it mm-hmm. and and how much they believe in it. Because most I, I would say that most aren't doing something they don't believe in. It has some kind of core, some kind of core value to them. But if you put all that aside, how how is that more important than a 15, 16, 17 year old child who says, every time you say that word, this is what it feels like. My, I heard it. My mom heard it. My grandmother heard it. It's ugly. It's hurtful. And if, if you're truly saying that the, the point of reading this book and having this discussion is to learn about racism, to not repeat Mm -hmm. it, then why hold on to the book? Aren't there any other works right. of art that we could look at? Could we stop and look at the news and talk about current events for a month? Right. We can find those same lessons, but we don't want to do that. And then we want to turn around and hold on to this right. classic piece of art. So it doesn't feel, it doesn't, I don't feel the the equity of it. If I say my child is hurting, I am hurting, I think you shouldn't do this. And the answer is, yes, but it's good art. It's old. It was good art, you know, 50 years ago. True, true. Because then maybe it was it was cutting edge. It, right. And definitely. Maybe at that point it wasn't important. And it's still, it's a classic. It is a classic, yeah. And it's been taught for years in, in right. schoolrooms. But maybe it's, I think it is time to move forward with our art. You know, our art reflects where we're at as a culture and a society. Mm-hmm. And... I think at that time it was probably really powerful. Right. And now it's time to, like you and I have talked about, why don't we find plays written by black playwrights mm-hmm. and pe- people of color? And why don't we perform those? That mm-hmm. would be a, probably a more meaningful statement than an old play by a white, you know, it was a book written by a white woman, woman. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 60s. Wouldn't it be more meaningful to advance our culture and society? Right for what, you know, where we're at with our times. I mean, I think that would communicate something very different than continuing to do an old play. I would. With a word that people have said, I don't want to hear anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear it. That's it. All righty. Let's uh, uh, have a little bit of a break, and we'll be back with you shortly. CPL Radio in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. It is 524 in the afternoon. We're going to go on to a break for a little bit, and we'll be back very shortly. Thank you for tuning in, everybody.
ugly time and difficult time in American history. During this time, issues of racism and segregation were prevalent and were reflected in the language used in that era. Although we say this ugly word in order to correctly convey the message of the show, we say it in hopes that the N-word will no longer be used in the future. 5.31 in the afternoon, CPL Radio on the air live. Uh, I've been listening to the Bridge of the Divide uh, to Kill a Mockingbird analysis. Um, pretty amazing stuff so far this afternoon and uh, definitely... Uh, want to also thank Erica and Heidi for making this happen. Thank you so much. Um, it's um, It's been a pleasure to and an honor to be part of this conversation and to be a, a piece of it anyway. So thank you so much for bringing that to, to Cedarburg Public Library and our, our little nook in the radio universe. Um, right. <laughs> uh, we'll kick it back to uh, Erica and Heidi for our final segment. And away we go. So this is Heidi again. I was going to finish my thought that I was having before our call, our last call. Um, if you are white and you are confused or even angry, um, my encouragement to you would be to hang in there because um, even I'm confused. I've been on this journey for a while, maybe five years. And like Lisa said, white people need to understand that their journey is going to be a lifetime journey. And I I believe that I will never have, have all the answers. And um, I think all humanity's journey is a lifetime journey. And we're always all trying to heal from our past and our wounds and trying to um, become people that can listen better. And I think that um, sometimes I hear people say, be quiet. Sometimes I hear people say, speak up more mm-hmm. and it's probably both Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's a matter of timing and and listening. And, um, but I think being at the table is important, but also understanding you don't have to have all the answers and there is not a right way of doing things because we don't have it. And that's what we're saying. We don't have a framework. And so, I mean, I think going slow is important, Mm -hmm. which usually means listening Mm -hmm. and, um, supporting, people doing the work like I I feel like your support person Erica because you I mean you're out you this is a lot of this is your lived experience you've had mm-hmm. um you know a lot of history with racial tension and um the terrible things that we've talked about in the past and um yeah I'm, I'm here to support you and I'm so thankful for your friendship because when I'm awkward mm-hmm. <laughs> or I say the wrong thing or I don't do the right thing. Um, you have grace for me. And um, that to me is healing. And so being in relationship together, um, I hope is helping bridge the divide. And that's what I'm hoping for all of our listeners is that you can come to the table and meet people and learn about their experiences and listen and, and develop friendships. Mm-hmm. And that's how I think will change and how we'll create a framework. Yes, I agree. <laughs> All of that. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, like, like Heidi said, we've, we've got to be at the table together. And we have to understand that, that there are lots of mistakes. They're just mistakes that we, we don't know about. Sometimes we know about them and we make them again anyway. But if we are not in 
a relationship, which is going forward together or working through whatever it is, I don't see how it's going to work. I, I am definitely very um, hopeful. I think I've said it before, too. We talk about racial reconciliation and in on one aspect of it, it's I don't know how we're going to be reconciled until we're all in heaven and perfect and mm-hmm. then everything will be perfect. But everything here is going to be kind of ugly and clunky and uncomfortable. And it's just about us working through that together. And mm-hmm. I think we can do it. I think we can progress beyond where we are now, but we have to sit in the ugly and uncomfortable for a bit at different times and then just get up and walk walk together down mm-hmm. the road. And I think we're doing it. And we're, we're encouraging that, I think, too, with, with Bridge the Divide. Come in, talk, ask the hard questions because we provide a safe place for you to ask questions mm-hmm. to um and and know that we don't all have the same answer mm-hmm. we're not i i talk about being a person of color but i can only give you my um my opinion my thoughts from my framework however i grew up which is not the same as somebody else's and as we as we flip back over to shorewood again i think that's another of the things that's happening in shorewood um again an outsider looking in is that not everybody, because they're in the same skin, have the same opinion about the issue um, of the play, of performing the play, of reading the book, of um, of having this type of conversation. So we can't expect people, just because they live in the same area, to think the same way, just because they live in the same skin, to think the same way. You know, mm-hmm. we all have just different things that we bring to the table. Um, and... I think one of the the opinions about To Kill a Mockingbird that we hadn't touched on quite yet was, um, no, I don't like hearing this word. I don't I don't mind the book if Mm -hmm. we're talking about it or I don't mind having a discussion about it because it's a a good book. But maybe I mind hearing it on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I don't mind hearing it on stage because um, with some of the comments as this has come out, I've heard a lot of, well, yeah, about that music boy, I can hear that word all over the place in that music. So how can you really be upset about it if it's on stage? Well, you know, that's another culture, another layer, another um, another discussion. I'm not, <laughs> not sure that's a discussion we can have here. But we did find the um, video of the students. I referenced it earlier. And we have students who are at least to me, there are three of them that present as people of color and three of them that present as white. I don't know if that's correct or not, mm-hmm. but let's take a listen. We talk about hearing the voices of the kids. Let's take a listen to what they actually had to say. The Mockingbird takes place in Macomb, Alabama, 1935. It reflects an ugly time and difficult time in American history. During this time, issues of racism and segregation were prevalent and were reflected in the language used in that era. Although we say this ugly word in order to correctly convey the message of the show, we say it in hopes that the N-word will no longer be used in the future. During the rehearsal process, we have been very sensitive to this word. We realize that it's dehumanizing and completely insensitive, and we only use it in the context of our character and in our character. Over this rehearsal process, we have all had to learn how to separate ourselves from the characters that we are playing. And while it can be difficult to portray these different ideas and different personalities, we as advocates for change understand that it's important to telling this story. Also during this process, we learned to separate the theme from the plot. While the plot can be troubling, 
to be seen portrayed by, your pe by our peers. We understand that this message calls upon us for change, acceptance, and equality. We completely understand the weight of the word and want to use it as a force for good. Because of how relevant the themes of this play are in our world, we are trying to use this art to spark difficult conversations. We encourage everyone to continue these conversations. It hurts to say it. It hurts to hear it. We need to address racism to change racism. Okay. So, um, you know, again, not everybody feels the same way. I, I don't necessarily agree with what they said in the video, but as we keep saying, everybody needs to have a seat at the table and have their voices heard. So the, the folks who really believe that this is um, a very important play, we need to be able to hear their voices. I, I think it. I think we still should be able to come to a, um, a conclusion that I don't know if we're going to make it to. It seems like it, there's just going to be the back and forth and the arguments and how do you even get to how do you get to a solution even if it's not a long-term solution if we can't talk to each other? I I mean with with this Shorewood controversy, you could say there was a couple of ways they could have done it. They could have gone on with the play or they could have stopped the play or some you know, lukewarm compromise like they did. Mm -hmm. um, but what about the person that's saying a decision had to be made mm -hmm. and they made one? Um, I think one of my kids is knocking at the door out there. Um, what, what do you say? Uh, the school board made one, made a decision. Right. So, and and their kid, there was kids of color in that video who were the actors and they think that what they're doing is promoting change. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what they believe. I don't know you know, to, I think it was Lee, or Patience's point of, mm -hmm. about um, power, you mm -hmm. know, if it was a white director mm -hmm. saying, you know, in, giving them these messages that, you, you know, by doing this play, you're going to influence change and mm -hmm. it's important to do this play. Um, but nobody wants to feel like their voice is not heard. And, right. and that's another aspect of the power. I can just do what I want whenever I want because I am in charge of this and you're not, or I only heard one black person complain about it. So it must be okay. I mean, I still think there's a, an, uh, a there's gotta be a level of, of discussion and understanding that sometimes you just can't win the fight. And, you know, again, with the personal opinions, I'm not sure that Shorewood's answer to go ahead with the play is, winning. I think that some of those folks might feel that they won, but but my uh, personal opinion about it because that's all I can give you is I I don't think that it was a win. I think that you continue to um oppress and marginalize people that tried to step up to say do this for me. I I understand that you like this play, but if we talk about loving other people and love uh, uh neighbors as yourself, I think that Shorewood had a chance to show the people of color in their community that they really loved them by by not doing something that was that was harmful for the sake of art. So they they made a choice and they the did. choice reflected maybe true colors mm -hmm. or where they're at and <laughs> I guess the play did 
is going to be a source of, of advocacy and change. Right. There's going to be conversations but now. Not, <laughs> but not the way it was, you know, in, originally intended. Right, right, right. I think we're going to have to just keep an, keep an eye out, see how those community conversations went tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're going forward with the play, and then they're going to have a talk back tomorrow night and see how that goes. And and hopefully, again, like Patience said, it's not this, this one-time thing that you say, I had a talk back, so now I can wash my hands of it all right. as well. There's a, a continual and hopefully progressive, you know, it's not we're continuing spending in a circle saying the same thing. We're actually moving forward towards a better relationship and towards some progress to not have to have these flashpoints all the time before we talk about it. It does seem like a lot of these conversa- conversations end up being when things are on fire. Right. <laughs> instead of <laughs> when, it? yeah, instead of preemptively. Right, right. And hopefully they've learned some lessons. And I, and I also, too, as a part of the long-term goal, if you are in a community that's majority white with a, a student administration that's majority white, with a, um, educators that are majority white, you have to work hard to make sure that you hear the other side of it. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to just kind of settle in because things are going your way. Right. They're going well. So not even necessarily to point fingers, you're a bad person, you did this, but you should really take a look at what's constructed there in the village, how you live, how, how you work, where you work, how your schools look, and how can you expect change if you keep all the same people in all of their same mm. positions? How is anything supposed to change? It won't. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if they're listening to us, but I don't think I have <laughs> any kind of authority to change anything. I just like to talk. So <laughs> that's what you get. So there. Got to start somewhere. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think um, I think that this was, well, it was scary is what it was, but we did it. And hopefully there's there's opportunities to learn and people will just take take away um some of these these opportunities and do something with them and we always have bridges of divide to have more conversations not always easy ones you're not always going to hear what you want to hear but you're going to hear some some truth and honesty and i think some love i think we we infuse love into what we're i think so. what we're doing i think and that's how we're something that makes us different i do i do yep um our next meeting is Monday, November 5th, yes. 6 to 8, we're hosting James Causey yeah. on the impact of trauma. Right. He's a, an award-winning Milwaukee-based journalist, and he will be speaking that night. So you, you won't want to miss that. You will not want to miss that one. <laughs> I believe Mr. Causey is a radio guy, so I'll have to uh, talk to him myself and say hello. <laughs> so, uh, well, thanks to everybody who tuned in and who called in and... Um, this was great. Uh, very, very pleased and overjoyed to uh, host host this show here on CPL Radio. It's 5.45 p.m. We're going to kick it over to a little music to take you to the top of the hour, 6 o'clock, and we will cut over to Washington for Voice of America's uh, newscast and get you all the fresh headlines. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>